Hello and welcome to another episode of Open to Criticism. I'm Wendy Lloyd and this is my podcast about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. I've been a film critic for 30 years and last year I completed a Masters in Cultural Inequalities where I looked into how criticism remains heavily skewed towards white men, especially in top jobs. Me Too, BLM and Time's Up have raised issues about inequalities and representation on screen and I'm keen to unpack how these inequalities manifest in the related world of criticism. Because as film fans, we consume criticism without perhaps thinking too much about whose voices are being prioritised and the impact this has on the kinds of stories that are told and valued in cinema. Each week, conversations with my fascinating guests dig into all of this and more. And I hope it'll encourage you to broaden the range of film criticism that you seek out and to think more critically about the way things are represented on screen and talked about in the media. My guest this week is the film critic for the industry bible Variety, and he's also the home entertainment columnist for The Observer, Guy Lodge. Guy also writes for The Guardian, Sight and Sound, Attitude and Rolling Stone, and he's often called on for his queer perspective on cinema. This idea people have, you know, that they don't bring their identity into their work and that I, the pure straight white man, can see outside such things because I am the norm, not realising that they bring their identity into everything they write because we all do and because that privilege is is what they've always lived with and has completely shaped their worldview and their critical point of view and their taste. Now, if you've listened to previous episodes of Open to Criticism, you'll know by now my issue with the traditional and indeed straight white male view that proper criticism is objective and detached and that critics must not bring their identity into the equation. But to recap, the rest of us who don't align with that straight white male identity and who therefore see the world and therefore film from different standpoints, well, we experience and read cinema differently from our very different subjective positions. And this podcast, as you may know by now, is all about celebrating that. So I kicked off my chat with Guy this week by asking about his critique of Jane Campion's multi-award winning film, The Power of the Dog, which he wrote for The Guardian back in December 2021. For me, his review is a perfect example of how an insider reading of themes, in this case, Guy's analysis of the repressed queer love of Benedict Cumberbatch's Phil and the BDSM significance of all his cowboy paraphernalia, enables filmgoers to gain a deeper understanding of what a film has to say. Yeah, that, I mean, that really is where critics' point of view is crucial and, and defines one's writing. And it's not a matter of there being one correct point of view, but it, it takes different ones to, I, I think, to kind of throw light on, on different aspects of various films. And I, I think, yeah, and I think in the case of a film like The Power of the Dog, certainly the initial wave of criticism of it or reviews of it, while very positive, was coming from quite a quite a straight and quite a heteronormative perspective and i think you know the character of, of bill was I, I think some otherized and and villainized maybe um 
more than he was with a, a kind of second wave of, of queer critics evaluating the film on both sides, by the way. I mean, I know a lot of uh, queer critics who really don't like the film and, and take issue with its representation and don't find it you know, very believable or, or authentic. And then others who find it quite sympathetic and quite plausible and, and see some aspects of themselves or the community or, or the journey they've been through in his in his kind of closeted nature. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I think often criticism kind of works in, it works in waves like a kind of dialogue. There's sort of one consensus that's put out there and then another responds to that and then it goes back and forth. And I think that's when things get interesting. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because, yeah, you know, I read that after I'd seen the film. Um, it had come out, it had been released on streaming. Yeah. And I had thought about it to some extent. So it's interesting you said there about a sort of second wave of critique. Did you, was there a particular reason why your piece was, you know, that much time after it had come out? It wasn't ages after, but, you know. Um, I, don't, I don't think it was, there wasn't a particular reason. It wasn't um, something that I sort of was like, okay, I'm going to wait for this moment and, <laughs> uh, and pitch it. I think it was because we were kind of at a certain point in award season at that point and the yeah. film was still, you know, very prominent in, in the conversation. And as, as happens when films are in line for awards, the sort of discourse around them gets prolonged and, um, <laughs> you know, and their backlashes and backlashes to backlashes and, and so on. Um, and I think I must have tweeted something about people as I felt misreading the queerness of the film in, in a lot of this dialogue. And I think probably The Guardian then came to me and said, oh, that's interesting. Would you like to kind of write a piece about it? Uh, ah. That's usually, usually how these things, these things go for me. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a sort of specifically timed um, thing, but I think it was a response to a more kind of dominant strain of conversation at that point. Yes, and I suppose, as you said, because it was being talked about a lot, it was award season, yeah. um, there was an appetite for another angle on it. It's interesting that you mentioned social media because you're very active on social media. You're very funny on social media. <laughs> well, but you, you. also, oh, you know, you do, you know, do th these kind of quite pertinent reflections on things that are out in cinemas or out culturally. Yeah, um, yeah so it's interesting you say that you, you get commissions that way, that putting that point of view out there really does get listened to. Yeah, I mean, I found I I actually get quite a lot of work via via Twitter. Um, I think if if you use it a certain way, it's it's a way to kind of start conversations that you can then um, kind of expand upon in, in in some other on other platforms or in in other media. Uh, I mean, I think that's why it's it's easy to be dismissive of Twitter, um, particularly uh, given its um, management issues lately, uh, <laughs> but. I still think it's a very useful forum for, you know, communities, in this case, a kind of film community, uh, to kind of have a fairly democratic dialogue where everyone can kind of interact with with another and there's no kind of privilege of access or whatever. And, and you know, I keep discovering kind of new voices that I find very interesting via Twitter still. Yes, well, likewise. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's just every now and again, things can get a bit messy, yeah. but it is a source of um, really interesting information. Um, I mean, your career, you know, you've made your name in big mainstream publications. You're very established. You write regularly for the for Variety, The mm. Guardian. Um, and I wonder, over the course of that career then, how much have you had to or did you have to limit perhaps writing about queer themes in your film reviews? And how much has that changed? 
I never limited it. I mean, I think in in a way it um it actually became an asset to a lot of what I write. I mean, I you know the Guardian often kind of approaches me, and I sometimes pitch them um, kind of queer angles on on certain films, and and they welcome that um, and variety. Um, along with you know a couple of other queer critics on the team, I often if there's a a film that seems particularly uh, suited to our points of view, then then one of us will review them. So it's I I, I don't think it's um, something I've ever had to limit at all. I think it's actually uh, it, it opens up writing opportunities rather. Yeah, well, I mean, I would have thought so in terms of, you know, it's a very clear sort of like, you know, perspective that you bring. Mm. But I just wondered whether, you know, in terms of obviously we're seeing a lot more filmmaking and and a shift in the way that um, there are queer representations on screen and the way we're talking about things. So I just wondered whether that... You know, perhaps you, I don't know, is there, a, is there a greater freedom now or did you always feel free to write in the way that you wanted to about these things? I think there is kind of greater freedom in a way because I think a lot of these issues are more, um, they're, they're more in the mainstream. So there's a more kind of generalised understanding of them. I think mm. perhaps if, if I did limit things in a certain way earlier, it was, and maybe still do sometimes, it's that when you are reviewing, say, a very queer-centric film for Variety, which has you know a very general trade audience, you might still couch your arguments or your in kind of fairly familiar terms and not get you know it's a matter of tone and you know you you describe things differently talking to you know an audience of other queer people than you would to a a, a less specialized readership. So. I think, you know, often queer critics have probably had to slightly tone down their argument, particularly in terms of the language used or the jargon used, particularly when it comes comes to kind of more explicit matters of sexuality. Mm. Um, and I think there's there is a bit more freedom around that now and, and things aren't seen I think certain taboos have been lifted, but there's it's still in flux. Yeah, I mean, because obviously, you know, traditionally the cinematic gaze very much heteronormative. Yeah. Um, so it's, I suppose, it's always a case of shifting that in some direction, and that's it's about shifting that white male yeah. heteronormative gaze, isn't it? And it's interesting because the several white male critics I've spoken to, and I understand why they see it this way yeah. that. Um, you know, you, you should not be bringing your identity into your criticism at all, um, that you can be detached. But of course, that's coming from the position that it was always the, in quotes, universal one, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Um, so it's interesting talking to you because if there's any part of our identity that is outside of that, any part of it, th- immediately we do have, quote, an alternative perspective, don't we? But And, and therefore we then see where our identity differs from that normal position, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it does always kind of amuse me. And you see it so much in, in you know, the current kind of discourse around, um, you know, the, I hate the way the word woke has been appropriated and the way kind of the, the anti-woke kind of faction that's emerged. Because yeah. um, they keep describing their position or their point of view as, you know, as the normal one, yeah. as as the norm that's that has to be the center of everything from... From which you know, and it's not even you know, it's not even a majority perspective when, particularly when you consider that it's 
is mostly led by men as well. Mm. <laughs> so well, exactly. And I think it's it's an ongoing kind of education for a lot of more kind of well-meaning critics who are writing in good faith, but, you know, who haven't ever had that um, that status quo challenged and, and think of their views and their kind of point of view as, you know, as standard, as normal, yeah. as the kind of baseline from which their readers will understand things as well. Um, and I think increasingly they're kind of being led to see, particularly if they're active on social media where such dialogues kind of flare up often and, and sometimes quite heatedly, that people see things very differently and that their readers are not, you know, are not all like them. You know, it, it, it can be uh, a kind of fractious dialogue, but I think ultimately it's a very helpful one and it's going to lead to, yeah, it leads slightly destabilizing this this kind of false norm that's that's always kind of led in, uh, particularly in arts journalism, um, you know, which which is informed by so many factors from, you know, from class and education level to race and gender and sexuality and nationality. And I, I think it's um, dominated, I think, by that demographic. But I, mm. I think they are being kind of challenged and disrupted and, and I'm all for them. Hmm, exactly. And, and I think, as you said, it's like it just takes this sort of ongoing conversation about it and for the people in question to kind of see that it's, you know, it, because shifting that perspective of there being actually a, a monolithic kind of norm yeah. is 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 hard. It's it's centuries of yeah. in place. But I think it's 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 an interesting process, definitely. And this this idea people have, you know, that they don't bring their identity into their work, and that they, you know, oh, oh well, I, you know, I the the you know the pure straight white man um, can can see outside such things because I am the norm, um, and <laughs> not realizing that they bring their identity into everything they write because yeah. we all do, and and because that that privilege is is what they've always lived with and has completely shaped their worldview and their and their critical points of view and their taste. Um, and, you know, as, as someone also comes from, you know, outside of Britain, because I come from South Africa, uh, I find every kind of aspect of, you know, of your identity that falls outside that sphere, uh, <laughs> you you notice it very much when yeah. you write in criticism. Yes, absolutely. That's it, because the, they come from that place, as do, you know, a vast swathe of the of filmmaking history. Yeah. Um, and the perspective that we see on screen. So it's it's quite a lot to unpick, but uh, we're doing it slowly. Um, yeah. <laughs> or maybe not so slowly. Um, let's let's talk about another um, yeah. one of your articles that I was interested in was one where you were looking at, um, well, you, you started off by talking about the film The Babadook. Yes. Yeah. Um, and how it was a really interesting example of sort of queer subtext and not least it being missed by many because you pointed out that no critics read that film as a slice of queer cinema yeah. and the director didn't kind of construct it in that way. I think that's a really interesting um, aspect of uh, talking about culture, isn't it? How yeah. how things can um, take on representations that weren't initially sort of inscribed in them. Yeah, and we tend to use the word appropriated in a negative sense, but it doesn't mm. have to be because I think this is uh, a, a classic example of you know of a community kind of appropriating a work that wasn't necessarily made with them in mind but with you know a sense of great affection and playfulness and it started as a bit of a joke as a, <laughs> a bit a meme in a way but then it's 
these these things kind of expand and it, it 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 does become part of the canon and it becomes kind of part of the community and people kind of the word spreads and and I think a lot more queer people have watched the Babadook for example than otherwise would have done because of this you know this very unusual uh, sort of adoption of it in, into the culture and I mean I remember when I first kind of heard about it I thought it was a bit of a laugh because I love the film I mean I think it's you know it's it's a great horror film and it's great feminist horror film as well and it's wonderful about kind of motherhood and and family and and trauma and you know all kinds of things that are you know not specific to the queer community um so when i heard that the, the kind of queer reading of it I, I i sort of thought well that's that's funny um but then i've been quite sort of touched actually by how yeah by how how sincere some people have been in response to it and 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 how you know jennifer kent the director has kind of embraced her embrace in turn um and and i think that's always interesting how identity can kind of assert itself on on works in in very different ways and in ways that aren't always intended by by the maker and and that can still be healthy and productive and and conversation starting Yes, well, I suppose it's it's great that the director felt that way. Isn't yeah. it? It's almost like you know, totally embracing that idea that when you put something out in the world, you don't know how it's going to be received, yeah. and it can go any sort of direction. Um, but I think what's interesting also about that film is, you know, my understanding of the queer reading is that the the monster's a gay icon because um, it represents the whole idea of um, a family's fear yeah. to, to do with the fear of your child coming out in a you know very straight sort of family home. Yeah. Um, and I understand the imagery was sort of later incorporated into Pride and all these things. Um, and I wondered whether that is also serves as a kind of really interesting illustration of how telling queer stories until very recently has had to use metaphor and analogy yeah. because of and censorship coding, yeah. and coding. Yeah. So um, can we talk a bit about that? Because I'm interested in how that, again, is something that's clearly, you know, changed as censorship has changed, as social conservatism has changed mm. over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's absolutely right that, you know, a lot of texts that are seen as, you know, as kind of defining queer texts in film and particularly camp texts as as part of kind of queer canon are often, I think now to a lot of younger queer viewers, they're a bit perplexed because they're like, well, <laughs> why is this queer? This isn't, you know, because they're accustomed to to things being able to kind of to be literal and to be yeah. confronted directly um and you know when you have you know a film like johnny guitar or whatever uh they don't necessarily you know see it as as something that you know that relates to them uh you know a, a, an interesting example of a kind of similar phenomenon to the babadook albeit in a, you know on a very different film and quite different context was how in you know in the 80s fatal attraction was seen as kind of or, or was kind of posited as as an allegory for kind of queerness and for the AIDS crisis in particular kind mm. of disrupting um kind of domestic uh sort of stability in middle America you know I I very much doubt that Adrian Lyne intended it that way but again it's 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 kind of powerful and resonant reading and I think that's that's always kind of been applied to texts and and has sort of changed their change their meaning and their audience kind of in in the process i think that can be very powerful and, and very for people to and and very valuable from just from a, a kind of media reading perspective to 
to be able to see stories, to see subtext, to see to see yourself in something that isn't necessarily a reflection of you. And I think that's a valuable skill. And while I think it's wonderful that, you know, queer films can now be direct and explicit and and confrontational and and inclusive, you know, I I, I wouldn't want to lose that mm. you know, that that sense of finding ourselves in 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 other texts as well. I think and hope that that will always continue. Yeah, because it's interesting, isn't it? There's an awful lot of creativity and inventiveness required exactly. to bypass those restrictions. Um, but you know, one wants to have the freedom and greater freedom from that to, for that to increase to to be able to be direct. Yeah. But I understand the sort of like dilemma in that, definitely, yeah. in terms of the artistic way that uh, queer stories and queer. Um, you know, characterizations have manifested on screen. It's it's an interesting place to be at, really, isn't it? Yeah, particularly because they've often been often the you know the older texts that that have been kind of read as queer often are you know revolve around ideas of closeting and hidden mm. identities and um and and a way of living that people don't necessarily have to live anymore. So that is going to change, uh, and and that's for the best. But, yeah. Yeah. While I'm. I'm so glad that there's, you know, a now a wider spectrum of queer cinema that's often directly for us and about us and doesn't come doesn't have to hide and doesn't have to kind of couch itself in um in kind of disguised terms and metaphors. Yeah, I hope we continue to kind of project ourselves into the world around us and and not just our own demographic. I th- I think it's I think yeah, we should continue to be disruptive. Yes. Let's talk about queer horror then specifically, which I know Babadook came into that. Yeah. And I like the way you said it's a sort of near tautological term because, um, you know, there, there always is the fear yeah. of um, <laughs> of the other involved in, in that predicament anyway. Um, why was and is horror such a fertile ground for sort of queer interpretation and stories and representation? I think because, yeah, I'm, because it hinges on yeah, on fear of the other and of fear of the unknown. And so much horror in particular revolves around around kind of threats to family and to mm. yeah, to to domestic stability and, and, and contentment and, and I mean there's the reason why so much American horror sort of revolves around suburbia. Yeah. Um and I think it's always been easy to to read queerness into that because it's it's what lurks underneath that people know exists but don't want to talk about um, right. or didn't want to talk about for a very long time mm. and i think horror can often be a very kind of sexual genre as well it, it it involves the body and and kind of yeah the the underside of things and and yeah exploring not just fear but also curiosity uh which you know which which obviously you know leans leans very much into exploration of sexuality and and alternative kind of ways of living and identity as well and and so i think it's, it's always just been yeah such a such a natural pairing and there's a reason why why there's such a kind of long academic history of kind of queer academics theorists particularly revolving around yeah around the horror genre and do you think then that um, for people who are perhaps not as kind of, you know, across horror as a genre, yeah. it's certainly not my specialism. Do you think something like the kind of focus on the final girl and the issues to do with, um, you know, heterosexual female characters and um, issues to do with their representation yeah. 
kind of steals the limelight a bit in that regard? I don't think they steal the limelight. I think they're quite intersectional, actually. Right. I and mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's kind of a, a proud tradition of, of feminism in horror. Um, and I think that sits very um, compatibly uh, alongside and together with the kind of queerness of horror because it's, um, it's, it's again, it's often the, the enemy in horror is often is masculine and threatening and violent mm. um, and a, a threat to both kind of, uh, so and queerness in horror can be both the kind of aggressor and the victim, depending on how you view it. Right. And so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's important not to sort of, particularly when people start kind of getting into film theory, to not feel kind of threatened by other readings and to kind of feel, well, no, this is about feminism and women and then other people fighting. No, it's about kind of queerness. It's like, it's, it's always yeah, both. It's yeah. always together. <laughs> um, and and if, you, if you see yourself in it and if you see something that resonates with you in it, 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 it can't be wrong. It's, it's part of the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole multi-perspective kind of yeah. thing that we're talking about, isn't it? Um, in terms of the early history of, of queer horror, h- how were these sort of films read at the time? Um, bearing in mind, you know, you would have had, um, I mean, obviously long before the Hayes Code, mm. um, there wouldn't have been restrictions, I would imagine, to that much of an extent about what you put on screen in terms of horror. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, the illegality of homosexuality, um, how were these read how were critics receiving and talking about these films can are you able to shed any light on that it's a good question because i feel like criticism at the time you know, wouldn't wouldn't have touched on subjects like that and i think you know you take a film like frankenstein which was you know i think treated and, and reviewed at the time as a you know as as a kind of commercial exploitation and and not as not as a particularly kind of complex work of art Mm. Which is not to say that people didn't see queerness in it at the time, but it wasn't film criticism at that point hadn't quite evolved to that sort of stage of discourse in 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 the kind of public sphere. I I, I think it's clear that the film was made with subtext. I mean, James Whale, after all, was uh, you know a flamboyantly queer man, and I think he projected a lot of himself and his kind of insecurities into films that he made. Mm. Um, but yes, it, it, it was not something that was publicly engaged with or talked about. I would be interested to know, and, and what I don't know, is is whether there were specialist kind of queer cinephiles at the time who kind mm. of congregated to, to talk yeah. about this stuff and share these theories. There must have been a salon somewhere. There must have been, <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we don't seem to have the... The published evidence yeah. of it. It's a shame, isn't it? It really mm. is. It'd be nice to kind of have, you know, understand, you know, you, you, this is what you lose um, with stuff not being catalogued at the time exactly, and, and yeah. flying under the radar. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, the AIDS reading of Fatal Attraction. Yep. And of course, you know, like other social groups for other reasons, um, the queer community does have to contend with political fear mongering. Yep. Um, in terms of on-screen representation. And, of course, the AIDS crisis, you know, was a big factor in that in the 80s, wasn't it? Um, Was there a kind of dramatic shift um, of kind of going a bit further back underground when all that happened? I think probably there was, yes. And, I I mean, it really cannot be kind of understated just how far we've come in, in, you know, in 30, you know, 30, 40 years Mm. and, and how mainstream and how kind of acceptable in mainstream publications very homophobic and toxic kind of 
uh, uh, criticism was and 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 was permitted and seen as kind of normal. Mm. Yeah, and I think particularly kind of in the, the the ugliness of the AIDS crisis, there was kind of so much leveled against the community just from a numbers perspective. Um, the community lost so many of its kind of most vital mm. kind of creative and critical voices to the uh, uh, epidemic that, yeah, I think it did kind of particularly through the 90s, it got quieter and it kind of regathered itself and then I think emerged in the in the new century with, with, with force. Yeah. And, you know, if we move then to how things are now and, um, you know, you wrote recently about the, the film My Policeman, mm. um, which you, you, you wrote about, you know, the difference in terms of the representation of um, sex scenes yeah. in that and you compare it to how Philadelphia even cut its sex scene, I understand. Yeah. Um, there was none at all and you had a straight man in the main role and mostly a straight production team, didn't yeah. you? So I felt like your complaint was very much still that we, we are still in this time of needing to essentially present queer sex in a way that does not upset heterosexual um, sensibilities in any shape or form. Yeah. Is, are we still there? I think we are still there. And I think, you know, it's it's baby steps. But yeah, there's still, it's still a taboo that even, you know, people who are theoretically kind of very accepting and, and okay with, particularly with male on male queer sex, it's still something they're uncomfortable seeing or thinking about in a particularly visual or visceral way. Mm. And so I think films are still... Uh, if if they want to kind of succeed in the more general art house uh, world, they they still have to be quite quite polite and quite coy about it. And you know, you think of something like Moonlight as well. You know, a wonderful film mm. directed by uh, a straight man, but uh, a straight black man, which is you know uh, again a kind of interesting intersection of of kind of minority and and majority perspectives. Yeah, but. It's 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 one where the film is, I think, very effectively and and movingly built around a kind of abstinence, and 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 that works in the context of the film. And I don't think the film is missing, you know, a big graphic raunchy sex scene because it wouldn't work with that story. But I think that's also a reason why that film mm. took off in such a big yeah. way, and you know why it won the Oscar because because it you know the most explicit thing it has is 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 a, a very tastefully filmed kind of hand job on the beach yeah and i think people could just about deal with that uh or, or you know you think of call me by your name which yeah. again is frames its kind of sexual material quite quite carefully and quite um i don't really like the word tasteful because i'm like well there's nothing particularly tasteless about a graphic sex scene but um but yeah in a in a it's kind of classically aesthetically nice looking isn't it it's exactly it's... and there's a lot of there's a lot of concern with bodies i mean uh, uh, and and you know kind of lit like like roman statues i mean that's one thing in my policeman you know there's a sort of shot somewhere of harry styles kind of nude from behind with the kind of venetian sun coming in him and he really you know he's he does sort of look like you know michelangelo's david <laughs> and he's sort of he's shot like a sort of statue rather than a you know a, a sexual being yeah, and so I, I think we are still there, and and even you know a few years ago with Carol, a, a wonderful film that I love mm. by a queer filmmaker, it's still you know when when Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara finally go to bed, it kind of fades away at just the 
you know, at just the kind of crucial points. And mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder how long it's going to take us, you know, before an audience that isn't exclusively queer can can feel kind of comfortable just watching, you know, watching two queer people just getting it on. Guy Lodge, reflecting on on-screen queer relationships and how they're not yet being fully and equally represented. That's about it for this week and indeed for season one of Open to Criticism. I'll be back later in the year with more conversations about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. But in the meantime, make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Open to Criticism, where two is the number two. That way you'll keep up to date about the new season and how and when me or the show are popping up elsewhere in media land. And if you want to tell others about the show, oh, be my guest. Many thanks for listening. Do check out the rest of the season if you haven't already. And please leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, as that really does encourage others to listen. And it makes me happy. And it keeps me motivated to keep on going. Open to Criticism is written and produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. See you next season. <laughs>